The past few weeks have seen heated debates around speech. Who gets to speak and how and what gets to be said in public? So I'm very pleased to have my next guest on the podcast to give us some historical perspective on that conversation and to hear why he thinks censorship is not the solution to the societal tensions we're living through. Now that we have the means to shut this thing down, why shouldn't we do it when we're being subjected to this kind of, of hatred? And, and that's an understandable human impulse, but one which I fear is ultimately counterproductive and it's a very dangerous game for minorities. Jakob Mushengama is a Danish human rights lawyer and the author of a brilliant new book, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. It is a deeply researched and engaging look at why freedom of speech has been so hard won and why we must protect it. Jakob Mushengama is my guest today on Lean Out. Jakob, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much. So interesting in the week leading up to your book release, there are a number of free speech issues on the go. We have the truckers in Canada and debates over the limits of free speech on that. And we have the debate over Joe Rogan. So there's lots to speak about today. I wanted to start today with your podcast. So you started that podcast in January of 2018. From the time you started working on it until now, as you see the release of the book that came out of that project, what trends have you observed in the state of free speech? That's a good question. I think in many ways, things have gone in the wrong direction. So, so some of the, the, the trends that caused me to, to do the podcast, some of the concerns I had about the direction of free speech, especially in, in democracies, actually, have only worsened. So countries like Canada and Denmark that are sort of progressive, liberal, liberal open democracies are now adopting laws um, or looking to adopt laws that, that aim to curtail free speech, uh, for instance, on, on, on social media. And so so that, that's a big worry for me. I see a lot of the debates that we're having now sort of basically reruns of, of debates that we've humanity has had for, for a long time. As the concept of free speech has been developed and refined and fought over over the centuries or even millennia. So, so fundamentally, there's obviously, you know, free speech is essential for freedom and democracy or representative government. And any authoritarian state will, will always, free speech will be its first victim. So it's not a big surprise that there's a tension between free speech and authoritarianism. But even within democracies and within the camp of those who are in, in favor of, of um, the rule of law and human rights and so on, there's also a, a tension between what I call an egalitarian concept of free speech and an elitist concept of free speech. And the, uh, the egalitarian concept of free speech stresses that everyone should have access to, to speak uh, their mind in, in the public sphere, regardless of their status or education or wealth. And today, of course, also regardless of religion or race or gender uh, and so on. Whereas the elitist free speech conception has always had this uh, essential dread about allowing the unwashed mob to uh, to participate in in the public sphere it, it it puts a premium on a public sphere that is well regulated and ordered by uh, institutional gatekeepers who know better and and who can sort of sort out what the commoner is allowed to uh, be confronted with in in terms of information and opinion and of course what the elitist conception of free speech a hundred years ago is is very different from from the one today. So you know there were times when 
when it was thought you know dangerous to allow women to speak in in the public and there was a time when the lower classes were seen as unfit for participating in the in the public sphere but i would say that the same impulses are there that guide sort of the elitist free speech conception especially with the advancement of of social media because what social media of course has allowed is to give each and every citizen a, a voice that was unheard before because even though in theory all of us enjoyed free speech in practice traditional media politicians uh, intellectuals would have a privileged access to the to the public sphere and as a citizen as an ordinary citizen you wouldn't be able to to speak to 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 the public if uh, an editor or a journalist didn't uh, allow you access that has changed and and that of course has amplified also the harms and and the ugly side of free speech which which tends to make us afraid uh, but i think in overall the benefits of egalitarian free speech very much outweighs the 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 drawbacks so glad that you uh, started by touching on this because it's one of the main takeaways that I had from the book. And there's a great quote from a lawyer in the 1750s. I advocate unrestricted freedom of publication for works intended only for that part of the population, which is already enlightened. Yes, exactly. So that's uh, I think I think that's uh, from, from Germany during the the rule of, of Frederick the Great, where sort of the uh, the Enlightenment classes had this uh, the Wednesday Club where they met and and discussed Enlightenment, and the vast majority of of the participants viewed Enlightenment as something for for the elitist few, and they should en enjoy sort of unrestricted, untrammeled free speech, but certainly not the uh, ordinary lower classes because they were too stupid and credulous to be allowed uh, free speech. And which brings me to my next sort of point is about the idea of elite panics. Can you define that and, and maybe reflect on if you're seeing any of that in the current moment? Yeah, I think there's a huge tendency towards uh, elite panic. And elite panic is obviously very much tied to the elitist conception of, of, of free speech. So I, I think elite panic sort of occurs when... For instance, as you know, the world that we live in now is is very much feels uncertain. You know, the institutions and the values that we were brought up with and that gave us meaning that 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 sort of framed our, our world are rapidly changing, uh, and and perhaps they don't convey the same sense of of security and confidence that they that they did before. And and social media has certainly contributed to 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 that. Uh, so so there's an erosion of trust in institutions and in media and, and so on. And and that will tend to lead to those who are the powerful, the elites, to to panic about about this development. And and elite panic then tends to result in sort of more or less draconian attempts to shore up the established order uh, against uh, what is seen as an, an, an onslaught by nefarious uh, actors, including on, on, on social media. And But it also tends to perhaps often exaggerate the level of threat. So if you follow debates about misinformation and hate speech on social media you can in in, in traditional media you get a, a picture that there's this tsunami of lies and and hatred that that fills social media and that you know people you know by listening to uh, one episode of joe rogan will uh, immediately reject vaccines or you know if they log on to 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 youtube they'll become uh, right wing extremists uh, within 10 views i think the, the reality is 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 quite different the share of misinformation and hate speech is actually quite low in absolute numbers is obviously 
considerable, but the share of, of misinformation and, and hate speech, several sh- studies show, is, is actually quite low. And, and also, you know, most people don't become convinced by misinformation or propaganda. Those who fall prey to it tend to be those who are already a hardcore ideologue. So if you're a, a hardcore Trump supporter, for instance, you are, you, you're, you're willing, you're much more likely to be convinced by uh, conspiracy theories ab- about the election. Or, uh, but, but, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's not a hardcore Trump supporter in that demography, you're, you're not likely to, to believe that, you know, that the election was stolen, uh, uh, for instance. Of course, you know the fact that there are a considerable number of, of people who uh, who do buy into it is a problem that should not be be taken uh, lightly. But I think it's important to to keep some perspective rather than sort of go full on uh, into uh, elite panic. Because what will often happen is that elite panic leads to solutions and and policy proposals that are sort of worse or, or a cure that is worse than the disease, uh, if you like. Uh, and I think uh, the the tendency to crack down on the internet and social media in many democracies is is a perfect example of that. And, and reading through uh, the portion on the Bolsheviks and sort of the index of problematic materials <laughs> that the censors were looking for that grew and grew and grew. I mean, in the current moment, you're seeing on the left quite a tendency to want to censor and ban materials they find problematic, but also on the right with, with critical race theory in the schools. How do you see when you look at sort of the broad expanse of history, what normally happens when you start building these indexes of problematic materials? Yeah, uh, yeah, that that goes back uh, uh, a long time. Um, the, these indices, and it's, it's interesting that you know both the Catholic Church uh, and and the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany uh, had their their indexes of prohibited material, um, and even uh, apartheid South Africa had had a Jacobson index. Uh, so so that tells you something. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think they obviously reflect. How how more or less authoritarian uh, state or the most authoritarian states uh, tend to view um, ideas that conflict uh, with the uh, established uh, ideology, whether religious or secular, as, as as problematic as something and as something that that needs to be to be rooted out. And and that's why I, I don't think it's a it's a great idea if if democracies try to sort of uh, copy uh, copy that. But you're right in in saying that. Both on the left and the right, there are tendencies towards intolerance. And I think that reflects that we as human beings have a tendency towards intolerance. I think, you know, our original software, as it has evolved, is probably tends towards intolerance. And then free speech is this patch that has been built on top of our original software. And, and that patch needs to be continuously updated and, and and tweaked in order for the original software not to override it and sort of uh, reboot back to our default mode of, of intolerance. Because free speech is, you know, it's, it's a great principle to mobilize around when you are in agreement with the underlying agenda being furthered. And especially if you've if you're sort of oppressed or someone is trying to censor you, it's, you know, free speech becomes a great rallying cry. But free speech is not a great, free speech is not a great, it doesn't build social cohesion to the same extent that 
uh, say, religion or nationalism does. It doesn't bind citizens together in the same way. So if you're fighting a a revolution, free speech is great, you know, because you're, you know, your free speech is being denied by the enemy. And so that can help bind you together for, for your goal. But once the revolution is won, then free speech sort of amplifies the differences among those who have just won the, the, the revolution, and it doesn't bind you together in the same way that uh, nationalism or religion uh, does. And then it becomes a much more abstract principle and much more difficult to uphold when people use it, use free speech to further ideas, uh, ad- advance speech that you find are threatening to the values that you hold most dear. On the topic of social change, there's there's a really amazing quote from Mandela in the book talking about how uh, the movement only met violence with violence when every other mode of expression was cordoned off. Can you reflect on that quote a little bit? I found that really moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, to me underscores that free speech really is the antithesis of violence. You know, a lot of people think of free speech as, oh, it weaponizes uh, extremists against democracy. It, it furthers violence. But in, at its core, free speech is what allows us to live peacefully together, even though we have fundamental differences. You know, we can be neighbors, uh, we can be spouses, uh, <laughs> we can be colleagues, uh, and we can uh, we can live together in, uh, in peace, even though we have very different opinions about the good life, about first principles of politics uh, or, or religion, because we can discuss, we can uh, we can share perspectives, we can uh, change our minds, we can compromise, we can be pragmatic. Uh, but the only way to sort of reach a compromise and be pragmatic is to discuss things. And so, yeah, and that's why I, I think Mandela's quote is great, because he says, well, okay, we live under the you know, the most speakable form of injustice, we're being treated as subhumans merely because uh, of the color of our skin. But we will try to change this through through activism, through peaceful protests and so on. But once, uh, so, so through, basically through speech, through the exercise of free speech, even though there wasn't free speech in South, uh, apartheid South Africa. But, and then only when, there's no longer a- avenue for any kind of speech when you're met with with violence and repression at every turn can you justify uh, using uh, violence and i think you know the flip side of that is that then in democracies where no one you know despite of of lingering racism and so on uh, i think we can all agree that no one in in canada or in denmark or in the us is treated the same way that black South Africans were treated in, in in apartheid South Africa. So we all have an opportunity to avail ourselves of free speech, uh, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, to change our lot, to shine a light on on injustices uh, rather than than turn to violence. Uh, and 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 that's why um, free speech for me has been maybe the most powerful engine of human equality that is you know that that we humans have ever stumbled upon uh and and why it has been absolutely instrumental for every oppressed group or minority uh, to to stake their claim for justice and equality and, and tolerance uh in, in society whether you talk about the lgbtq movement whether it's 
you know, civil rights movement uh, in the U.S., uh, whether, you know, the rights of women uh, and, and so on, free speech, the practice and principle thereof has, has been absolutely instrumental. It's interesting because so many of the arguments today from free speech skeptics are, are the opposite, that we need yeah. to curtail free speech to, to help minority rights. Can, can you say a little bit more about how you think that view has evolved? Like, where does that come from and why has it stuck? Yeah, that's a good question, because it's a bit of a paradox in the sense that, first of all, maybe there's an historical lack of awareness of, about how central free speech has actually been to, to the struggles of, uh, of, of minority and, and, and oppressed groups. So the lack of historical awareness about it may uh, help explain why current uh, activism by some minority groups is is divorced from 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 the historical realities of uh, but maybe it's also something about power in the sense that in countries where minority groups have gained a level of of acceptance and tolerance and even gained political power th- those are the only countries where there's a realistic uh, chance of them being able to 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 have free speech uh, restrictions adopted. If you go to Russia or Hungary, the LGBT movement could never hope to have uh, speech restrictions reflect their interest, or uh, they they will be used against them. So so it's actually you know paradoxically perhaps a sign that minority groups in 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 certain countries in in the West. Have actually gained a level of power uh, and social uh, acceptance uh, that arguably they, they they don't need the kind of of, of special protection that they uh, that that they crave. And this is not to say that they're not that there are not hate crimes occurring against you know uh, racial, religious, or sexual minorities, uh, and that racism uh, doesn't exist. It it does, but it's on a very different level from 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 the past. Uh, you know, the idea of going back to the the South in the 1950s and 60s and the civil rights movement demanding, you know, hate speech protections uh, in Alabama would, would be pretty outlandish. And yeah, so so I guess that's 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 part of the 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 solution. Uh, that's part of the explanation. Another might be that you know. We also have to take serious that if you are from a minority or a traditionally oppressed group, you know, you it free speech may sting more than it does for other groups. And and so if you are a a minority group and you go on social media and you're being sort of attacked by an army of trolls and you're being epithets and slurs are being hurled about uh, at you, you may not see the value of free speech. Even though it has helped you historically to gain tolerance and and, uh, and and so on, you know, it becomes difficult to argue why you should, you know, now that we have the means to shut this thing down, why shouldn't we do it when we're being subjected to this kind of, of hatred? And, and that's an understandable human impulse, but one which I fear is ultimately counterproductive and it's a very dangerous game for minorities because you know, you will only ever be a majority away from being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against hatred and offense if you're a minority. Also wanted to ask you, you wrote about a, a new category of speech, dangerous speech, this coming from scholar Susan Banesh. Um, I wanted to read you a headline this week, an AP headline on the trucker protests. 
Calling the Ottawa protests peaceful plays down the nonviolent dangers, critics say. Yeah, uh, I haven't followed the the, the trucker thing uh, very close. So I've just seen sort of headlines uh, about it. But I think, you know, Susan Benesh is a, is, a, is a scholar whom I respect a lot. And I think her her concept of dangerous speech is actually quite helpful because it's a much more narrow category than hate speech. So, and, and you know, speech can involve harms. And, you know, it would be impossible to imagine mass atrocities, crimes against humanity, genocide without speech. Speech is absolutely necessary to mobilize people to commit heinous acts. Uh, you need to dehumanize the other. You need to incite people to to commit c- commit acts. And, and that's what Suzanne Benesh points at. So she points at this very limited category of dangerous speech, uh, which which always precipitates um, mass atrocities or crimes against humanity or even genocide. And as, you know, and as understood in that narrow context, I think it's a useful category because it's much more narrow and limited than the more nebulous concept of hate speech, which, you know, can mean just about, just about anything. And I'm quite sure, you know, even though I, I don't know the ins and outs of the trucker protest in Canada, I'm quite sure that they are not comparable to, say, the messages sent out by uh, radio stations in Rwanda prior to the uh, to the genocide there or to uh, Julius Streicher's uh, incitement to mass extermination of Jews uh, in in the Sturmer uh, in the in the Third Reich or to um, the Myanmar regime's uh, incitement against Muslims uh, there where, where they use Facebook to 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 incite um, uh, mass atrocities uh, against them. Um, so, so if you sort of expand the category of dangerous speech to include speech that you disagree with, then you're doing the the important work of Suzanne Benesh a disservice, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great Orwell quote uh, near to the end of the book. If large numbers of people are interested in freedom of speech, there will be freedom of speech, even if the law forbids it. If public opinion is sluggish, inconvenient minorities will be persecuted, even if laws exist to protect them. So how do we go about fostering a free speech culture? Yeah, that's a that's a great quote. I love Orwell is, is, is perhaps one of the only sort of truly principled <laughs> defenders uh, of, of, of free speech, whereas uh, I, I try to show in, in the book that many other champions of free speech have, have have fallen prey to what I call Milton's curse, whereas the sort of selective, unprincipled approach to free speech. But it's also, there's also another quote from John Stuart Mill, where he says something along the same line. So he says, you know, he talks about Victorian England, and he says, free speech ultimately does not only depend depend, you know, on the protection against the magistrate, but also uh, against society's tendency to impose its views on, on, on descenders through, through other means than, than laws. So that's what I, what I think about when it comes to the culture of free speech. And ultimately, that goes back to the, again, to the Athenian democracy, where you had this concept of parousia, which means something like uh, fearless or uninhibited speech, which permeated uh, the, the Athenian democracy and, and where, you know, you could criticize the high and mighty, talk irreverently a, a, about religion and so on. And and that was not sort of something that was based on a constitutional principle. It was a, a, a culture of tolerance, you could say. And that, I think, is ultimately, you know, laws will reflect the culture of free speech. Uh, so, so if you have a critical mass of people who believe 
that free speech is essential for the good society, uh, then uh, laws are also much more likely to to reflect that to be speech protective. But if people lose faith in free speech and become more intolerant, then laws will reflect that that change and become more intolerant. And how do we foster a culture of 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 free speech? Um, well, I, you know, this book is is is, is a uh, my modest, perhaps naive attempt to to do so. I think in a historical awareness of the the huge debt that we owe to so many who paid a, a very high price for expanding uh, free speech to to the level that we currently enjoy. Because even though you know there are many concerning developments and free speech is in decline globally, we still live in a global age of free speech. You know, people who were who, who some of the free speech champions would be amazed if they were sort of uh, if if you could uh, fast forward them into our time and you know could see that you're sitting well now we're on the on the same continent but you know we're still pretty far far away from each other and we can communicate in in real time that would have been and and you know with no government censoring our our communications that would be unthinkable to 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 many of those who fought for for free speech uh, and and hopefully also sort of showing how various groups uh, from from women to racial minorities and so on have benefited from from free speech and also you know how free speech uh, still serves as the bulwark of liberty for for dissidents around the world who who can't take free speech for granted to the same degree that you and I can, uh, because we're lucky enough to be born in, in in countries that still take free speech seriously, even even if not as seriously as perhaps we'd like. Hopefully, that can help foster a a culture uh, of, of free speech. But it, but it's all it's it's obviously something that is ultimately down to each. One of us. Uh, so, so those who believe in free speech have a, a responsibility of making the case for free speech um, to to others, and do it in a non condescending way, and also one which doesn't just rely on calling people who who want to restrict free speech fascists or totalitarians. Sort of uh, saying, you know, I understand where you're coming from. You, you know. Your impulse is is understandable, uh, and also take take serious the concerns of those who are worried about the ugly sides and harmful sides of free speech. Taking that serious, not you know dismissing them as uh, social justice warriors or snowflakes or or the likes, uh, and 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 making the case for why free speech, why you think free speech is in their interest, you know, even uh, if they're concerned about uh, racism or 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 hatred. I think the, those are, are some of the steps that we, uh, that we that that are needed. And just lastly, Jacob, I was so struck reading the book of how many free speech defenders throughout history have things have not gone well for them. They've been burned at the stake. They've been beaten. They've been been imprisoned. Serious, serious consequences. What do you think it is? What's the impulse in us that people continue to fight for that despite? all of those really negative outcomes. Yeah, well, you know, for some, it's it's just, you know, if you're, for instance, when it comes to religion, you know, if you're absolutely convinced that the religious ideas that that, that you hold are, are the truth, then that's a very strong motivator to, <laughs> to, to keep on fighting for that. But also a lot of uh, those champions lived in, in quite oppressive states. And, and so 
they had a, a wish to to better their lot and and to better the lot of their of their neighbors of of their families and and so on and they saw clearly that free speech would change things uh, would would take away the arbitrary power of totalitarian or authoritarian rulers and help bring about the conditions under which citizens and could could better their lot together and, and, and create a more just uh, world and 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 those are still i think important motivating factors that we shouldn't that we shouldn't forget Well, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's an incredible book. I learned so much from it. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a real pleasure. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 